Hi, thanks for joining me, Marnie Og, and Dark Sky Conversations. As always, it's lovely to have my guests chat to me about their ideas about dark sky conservation and their their contribution, whatever it may be. So today's guest is Professor Chris Lidman. He's the director of Siding Spring Observatory. And you'll hear us talk about the National Optical Telescope uh, for Australia based in Coonabarabran. We mentioned the Crooked Mountains that are around the observatory, and these are called Warramongal. That's a Gomoroi word, literally meaning Crooked Mountains. The site is about a six-hour drive from Sydney or from two hours from Dubbo. So uh, if you're thinking of heading up that way, it's a lovely holiday destination, particularly for families. Anyway, Siding Spring Observatory was the first place in Australia to introduce dark sky guidelines and there's a recent update being done to them now. If you'd like to check them out, you can go to the New South Wales Department of Planning website and use them to help you create some dark sky conservation principles as well. Enjoy our conversation. Thank you. Hi. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Hello, good morning, good evening, or wherever, whatever time of the day it is that you're listening to this podcast. I'm delighted to have my friend, my colleague, and my dark sky advocate, Chris Lidman, with me today, who's the director of Siding Spring Observatory. And Chris, I always think people can tell us more about themselves than I can ever do in an intro. So you're the director of Siding Spring Observatory. What does that mean? Oh, well, <laughs> good morning, Marnie. First, because uh, we're both in in mornings sure, at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, hello to all our, our, our listeners. Uh, director, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a diverse role. One is to uh, manage uh, all the, uh, the staff at the observatory. One is to uh, advertise the, the observatory uh, more broadly, not just to the scientific community, but also to uh, the communities uh, near the observatory and, and further afield because it's a also quite a popular tourist destination. We have a, a lot of people who come to visit the observatories, uh, have a look at the telescopes. Um, and uh, of course, a very important role is to uh, advocate for uh, dark skies because uh, without dark skies, uh, the observatory would not be able to do the work that it does. And uh, um, you know, the work at the, at the observatory covers uh, many areas uh, in astronomy. It's becoming a little bit broader now. There's also interest in using the observatory to understand uh, what's up close to the Earth and what's called space situation awareness. As many of you listeners probably know, that lots of satellites are being put up into space and uh, it's getting a bit crowded up there. And so uh, we'd like to make sure that uh, we, we have good control of, uh, of what's up there. Of course, that also links into dark skies because... Having lots of satellites up there uh, does mean that there's a, an additional source of light pollution that we have not seen so much in the past, and that's the um, sunlight reflecting off these satellites as they uh, 
uh, pass over head. So a very diverse mm. job. Mm. I'm based here in Canberra, but uh, I do get a chance to, to go to the observatory uh, typically once a month, and I'll be going up there next week, and uh, I very much look forward to, to my visits up there. Uh, it's a beautiful um, part of Australia, located on the edge of the Warramongal National Park. I always love the view, views from up there, not just of the, the night skies, but also the, the nature that's up there and uh, lots of wildlife up there as well. It is a pretty special part of the world. And I have to say that the first time I went up there, which is probably about, well, actually I was up there at the age of five and with my, my father, who was a very avid astronomer, amateur astronomer. And I actually got chased by an emu with, I had a chocolate bar in my hand. So I always remember being run, you know, run towards by an emu in Warren Bungles. But to describe this, this natural piece of wonderland, it's, it's, well, it's a volcanic area, isn't it? Full of volcanic plugs. How high is it, Chris? The observatory itself is 1,200 metres, huh. and, and that's one of the highest peaks in, in the Warramungal range. There's a couple which are slightly higher, but you're right about uh, describing it as a, a wonderland, uh, that all those volcanic features, um, the spires, the, the plugs, some of the bluffs are, are wonderful. In fact, from the observatory itself, you've got a wonderful view of what's known as the Grand High Tops, uh. Uh, and there's some wonderful walking in that area. Uh, really, really pretty and uh, and very accessible too. It's only forty minutes from Kinabaran, and uh, you 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 park the car and uh, you can go off and walk. Yeah, so it's uh, it's lovely. It's not to mention the sunset views from up the top there, which if you're lucky enough to be up there at sunset, you see the the sun literally dipping down right along the the western plain there. Um, I do remember bringing up the some of the team from Destination New South Wales and saying, you know, why isn't this more of a, a tourist destination? I think it is still a bit of a hidden gem for many people. And maybe, maybe we, this podcast might go some way in, in, get, in getting people there. So, Chris, why was Siding Spring chosen? What Do you know? Um, yes, that's a, that's a good question. So astronomers look for certain things. First of all, dark skies. So you want to be away from major cities that have lots of light pollution. Clear skies, so relatively good weather, which means you typically depend to be on remote areas or areas which are relatively dry. And mountaintop is another reason. The more you're above the Earth's atmosphere, the less distortion you have of the images that you, you take. So you get clearer, better images if you're higher so up. So less because twinkling. Less twinkling of the stars. Mm. That's a good way of putting it. And so you're higher up, you have less twinkling, you have clearer images. So being on top of a mountain is, 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 is what you're looking for. Now, Australia doesn't have many tall mountains. Kosciuszko is, is the highest at 2,000 metres. If you went to some observatories overseas, they're, they're based much higher. So in Mauna Kea is a good example. That's over 4,000 metres. Mm. Uh, the high Altiplano in uh, at Northern Chile, Chagnan Dor is at, uh, at 5,000 metres. Uh, at that sort of height, it starts getting hard to breathe. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we don't have great mountains uh, in Australia, but also because of our geographical location. There's another reason why Sardic Springs is there. In particular, when you're looking at transient astronomical phenomena, supernova, gravitational wave events, you need to have coverage, longitudinal coverage. So you want to have a telescope in 
Chile, you want to have a telescope in South Africa, and of course, you want a telescope in Australia. So that's another reason why uh, sunning screen is, is quite important, is its longitudinal coverage, in addition to the dark skies, a high mountaintop, and a relatively good, good climate. But, and if I'm not mistaken, the site's going to be celebrating a significant birthday in the next little while. That's right. So yep. uh, next year is uh, 50 years since uh, now King Charles III uh, came to visit the uh, telescope, the uh, Anglo-Australian telescope, to open the telescope. Um, that was in 1974, October 1974. So we're planning to have a, a big celebration uh, next year, now uh, October 2024, which will coincide also with what traditionally is Starfest, uh-huh. which uh, usually uh, occurs uh, the October long weekend, and that will occur this year as normal. Uh, and but next year it'll be extra special because we'll be celebrating 50 years of of the AAT. So uh, my my um, I guess the, the thing that I know about Siding Spring is that was really possible for a couple of reasons. One was that it was already being used, you know, before it became the National Optical Telescope, it was already being used as, as an observatory. But really what its success was due to, well, not just Australian ingenuity, and which we've still maintained, really, that the telescope is, is not such a young lady anymore, but doing some amazing work still. But it was really the introduction of easy long-haul flights that, astronomers could travel anywhere around the world and actually do observing in Australia. And um... You're right. That's another key aspect of locating an observatory. Maybe less critical now than it was in the past, but that's uh, easy access. 50, 60 years ago, putting a, a telescope, say, in the northwestern part of Western Australia would have been an extremely challenging thing to do. Uh... Uh, so access to engineering support, technical support, for the telescopes is, was an important part of choosing the site. It has evolved, though, over the last 10, 20 years. So previously, you know, astronomers from the UK or from elsewhere would have flown to Australia to use the telescope at Signing Spring, uh, in particular the Anglo-Australian telescope, and they would have flown all the way from, from Europe to spend a couple of nights in the telescope and then fly all the way back. That's before the age of the internet. Uh. Now we have the, the internet Actually, most uh, astronomers use a telescope remotely, so they would uh, be in the comfort of their office or at home. They would uh, log into the telescope control system and use the telescope uh, at night. That has some positives and negatives. Uh, positive is that you don't spend so much of your time traveling. The negative, of course, is that you don't travel. Mm. Uh, when I was starting off as an astronomer, one of the nicest parts of the job was to travel to these remote areas, remote locations spend a few days there doing some, doing some research, but also enjoying the, the, the area that was around the telescope. That's still possible now, uh, but it's done much less frequently. Yeah, it, it has changed. So where are some of the places that you've worked, Chris? Tell us about some of the wonderful, because they're well, always uh, beautiful areas, they are. Yes, yes. yes. So I guess um, I did my uh, studies here in Canberra at the Australian National University. And when I finished, I got a position at the European Southern Observatory. The European Southern Observatory has telescopes in Chile, uh, in uh, northern Chile, in particular, a couple of observatories which are uh, called the La Silla Observatory. And a bit further north of that is the uh, Paranal Observatory. 
And uh, these are remarkable places. People probably have heard of the Atacama Desert, mm. uh, an extremely dry place on the planet. But uh, until you, you go there, you, you don't realize how dry it is. Uh, I understand there are some places there where it hasn't rained in the last hundred years. Mm. And when, when you go there, you say, yes, I can see it hasn't rained in the last hundred years because there's absolutely nothing. There's not even a single blade of grass. There's no insects. It's just completely dry and barren. So not particularly good for human beings, but uh, for uh, an observatory, it's a very uh, good location because, of course, since it's not raining, it means that most of the nights are clear. And so you can, uh, you can observe uh, ta- object, objects pretty much every night of the year. I mean, it's, it's a bit hard on the human body because the humidity can be sometimes low as 0%. <laughs> and the human body does not um, react very well to such low humidities. Uh, most of the accommodation up there, are, are it's, there's a, some um, atmospheric control, there's a humidifier. So, but wonderful area, northern Chile, lots of, lots of mountains, a bit further south in Chile, of course, it gets a bit wetter, and so there's more forests and a bit more greenery. But in the north, uh, you've got these uh, amazing, amazing areas, uh, the Salars. There's a bit of wildlife. Uh, if you go higher up into the Altiplano, you have uh, what are known as um, vicuñas and, uh, and viscachas, some, uh, some small animals. Um, vicuñas like a, like, a, like a deer. And, but amazing. amazing. Yeah. So I, spent, I spent 14 years in Chile. Goodness, wow. Well, <laughs> you'd know it well then. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my my uh, uh, really wonderful part of part of my life, and uh, I do um, look forward to to going to visit friends that I have over there when I spent those fourteen years uh, in Chile. So then, what brought you back to Australia? There was an, an opportunity here in Australia um, to apply for a a grant, which allowed me to do some some research uh, that uh, was on my list of things to do. So um, I applied for that grant and I was successful in getting it. So that brought me back to Australia and I worked for the Australian Astronomical Observatory, which was based in Sydney. That was from 2010 to about 2018. Uh-huh. And that's when I became, uh, I guess, reintroduced to Siding Spring Observatory. I had been observing at Siding Spring Observatory as part of my PhD, so that was 30 Odd years ago, so I knew the place. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, I had an opportunity to come back to Australia, work for the uh, Australian Astronomical Observatory, do some some research that I've always wanted to do, and uh, and then uh, refamiliarise myself with the, you know, the Anglo Australian Telescope and the other telescope at Siding Spring. So uh, that's why, why I came back to Australia. So what's happened in that time to Siding Spring, Chris? You know, I know that I think it you know maintained. A- great tradition of, of research up there. So what, what's allowed that to happen and what's happened over that time? That's a good question. So one of the things that makes the observatory very special are the people and the ingenuity of, of the people. So there are some uh, instruments on some of the telescopes. In particular, I'm thinking of the Anglo-Australian telescope and the 2DF uh, fiber positioner. Uh, yeah, that instrument is, is unique and it's, it's been, it's maintained by technicians at the observatory, and it it makes it gives us uniqueness and in, in its capabilities. 
it is one of the most in-demand instruments at the observatory. It's in strong demand by our overseas colleagues uh. who want to use this, this facility. And this means that the, the observatory is, is, is producing cutting-edge science. Even though it's a relatively small observatory compared to some of the observatories in, in Chile, um, it punches above its weight. The, the AOT, for example, consistently ranks as one of the 10 most scientifically productive facilities that are in the world. And that's based on the number of papers that are produced? That's based on based on number of metrics, mm-hmm. and, and papers is one metric. The number of citations that these papers get is, is another metric. And over the last you know, many, many decades, the AOT has always been very, very, very high ranked, even though it's, it's, it's 50 years old now, almost 50 years old. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, at an observing site, which also is not as, 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 as good as the ones in Chile. It's still a very good observing site, but it's not, it doesn't have as many clear nights as the one in Chile. So it, it does very well. And there's a lot of interest for, from uh, international organizations, uh, national organizations to establish facilities at Siding Springs for the reason that I alluded to a little bit earlier, which is its uh, geographical location. Uh. So, not only is it a good observing site, it's, it's well located. And so if you're interested in, in studying transient phenomena or in space situational awareness, then you need to have a facility somewhere in Australia. And since Siding Springs already there and it's a good site, then many organizations base their facilities at SSO. And uh, that's something that's going to continue quite strongly into the future. Well... Yeah, we've re- as you said, the geographical positioning, you can't really change that. And that, yeah, that's so, yeah, I could ask a question, all sorts of questions there about, you know, what happens if we don't maintain dark skies at Siding Spring, for example? So that's, that's, that's a, um, a very good question. And one only has to look at other observatories around the world where, you know, light pollution has been, been become a problem. A good example is here in Canberra. One had the, the telescopes here at Mount Stromlo Observatory. Uh, for your listeners, Mount Stromlo is located about 15 kilometres from the centre of Canberra, and uh, light pollution was always always a problem. It's the reason why Siding Spring Observatory was established 60 years ago. Astronomers realised back then that Canberra was a growing city and that eventually the, um, the night sky would be too bright to do astronomical observations, and so... They moved the observatory north to a location where the skies were, were um, are still were pristine and still are pristine. Uh, well, that was my question. How do how is it? How how are we doing up there at Siding Spring? And yeah, we're we're doing really well. I think uh, we have good community support, which is really really critical. Uh, and we measure the, the night sky darkness, and uh, we don't see it changing. It's as dark now as it was 50 years ago. There are more lights on the horizon, uh, but they're far enough away not to, not to be an issue. It's 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 I guess relatively areas that are close to the observatory, which you know we need we need to keep an eye on. But um, you know, we have that good support from the community to protect the um, the dark skies. And of course, we we try to. There's a benefit not just for the observatory here. And there's a broader benefit to keeping uh, night skies dark. And this, this benefits extend to human beings. We need darkness to, to sleep, uh, to, to animals, uh, to, uh, to fauna. We need the dark sky. 
important. It's part of their 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 part of their environment, and of course, uh, um, uh, good lighting saves energy. Yeah. And uh, we all know that these days the price of energy is is, is very high and um, becoming becoming more expensive. So anything that one can do to save save energy and and that reduce cost is is also a, a big positive. Yeah. I've I've been sliding that into my talks recently, saying, you know, we've got an energy crisis. How how about we just turn the lights down or off between eleven p.m. and five a.m. and it would be, you know, I'd love to get someone to do the an analysis on that and what we would save if we did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's also um, educating people about principles of good lighting. You know, if 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 lighting is needed, uh, how to design it so that it's just lighting what it needs to to light with the appropriate light levels and uh, at the appropriate times. Uh, and that, that's, that's uh, um, simple things that one can do that mean you've still got the light, but you've, you've also um, protecting the, the dark skies at the same time. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ock. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. So you mentioned community awareness and engagement. How has Siding Spring gone about doing that? How have you managed to keep the community on board? A couple of things. So we have uh, we engage directly with the, the local councils. In, there are four local government areas uh, which uh, we work with quite closely. Uh, we uh, have uh, events to uh, highlight the dark skies. So, uh, or low every, light the dark skies, yeah. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry, bad pun. Yeah, yeah, no, good. <laughs> so, if, if during um, uh, Starfest we have the Bot Lecture, where we we invite uh, an astronomer to talk about astronomy, and uh, that's uh, a way of the observatory thanking the local community for um, being so vigilant uh, um, with their lighting and helping us control lighting. Um, and of course, there's the Dark Sky Park, uh, which includes the Warrumbungle National Park and also the um, Deer Observatory itself. So, having that Dark Sky Park there also um, helps uh, uh, promote the idea of, of, of uh, protecting our, our dark skies. Yeah, and because I have the privilege of sitting on one some of the committees out there. Seeing from a tourist benefit, you know the, the the upswing of people going out there just simply to experience something perhaps that they won't see in the, in their own hometown of being out under the stars and knowing it's a protected area for that for them. Yeah, I mean, seeing the stars in their sort of natural state is really quite awe inspiring. And uh, I was happening to listen to a, a interview with a, a young child on the ABC radio this morning, and uh, uh-huh. he had a he had a problem with his eyesight and uh, and then they were able to fix it and he was able to just see the stars for the first time. Mm. So I think that sort of uh, wonder and awe is something that we undervalue perhaps a, a little bit. Those of us who live in cities, we don't get to see the night sky as it should. And until you get to these truly dark areas, dark places, um, you miss, you're missing that. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I've heard similar stories with things like bird call. So if you live in a city where you never hear bird call, it's something that you don't miss. And I think if we don't introduce people to 
the night sky or if we just blanket our world with light pollution and none of us ever see it, then we won't miss it. We won't know what we're missing. But it also means we don't understand, you know, we're perhaps not introduced to space science or astronomy or the wonder of the world or navigation or any of those other things that looking at the stars have introduced to us and to our cultures. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. The um, Seeing the, the night sky in its natural state, not only gives you a sense of wonder, it also makes you think a little bit about today, our place uh, in the universe mm. and uh, also gives you some thought about science and technology and, uh, and, 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 and science in general. So I think having the dark sky, we would lo- not only a dark sky, but we would lose a lot. So Chris, I'm going to ask you about the dark sky guidelines and just what are they? What's the purpose? And what sort of questions do you get you know, thrown to you as, as the director of Siding Spring Observatory? So yes, the dark sky guidelines is a um, guideline produced by the New South Wales government uh, with uh, suggestions on good lighting practices and principles for reducing light pollution. It is uh, an excellent uh, document. Uh, so we thank the New South Wales government for, for producing this, this document. And it's really just a document to explain the issue of, of light pollution and simple measures that we can take to, to reduce light pollution, uh, protect the observatory, and also reduce energy costs. Uh, it's, 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 it's available on the um, government website. You just do Google Dark Sky Guidelines. And uh, you'll eventually find a, a link to it. And uh, it's about 20 pages long and uh, with lots of useful information and, and suggestions on what you can do to help uh, reduce light pollution. It's, the purpose there is for, for everyone. It's for uh, local homeowners. It's for um, large extraction industries. It's, it's, the purpose there is, is broad. Is broad. And, and do you get many questions about it because it's basically within a 200 kilometer radius of siding spring um, that yes the- so these dark sky guidelines can be applied anywhere but within the observatory there are around certain regions 12 18 kilometers and then 200 kilometers from the observatory and and depending on your distance there are, there are different regulations that you need to follow so that is all discussed and described in the dark sky guidelines those guidelines, I think, are useful for everyone, no matter how far away you're from the observatory, because it's the mostly common sense measures that you can use to reduce light pollution. Are you finding you're getting more and more questions about it, or are people just taking it, you know, something that's so far into them that people don't understand them or don't know about them, and therefore it might come as a shock, or is it something that people are becoming more aware of and then just ask you general input? Um, yeah, so I think people are becoming much more aware of it. Yeah. And the way I see it is from um, development applications and, and that, I, that I see. I, I see that, you know, they've already been, they're already aware of the dark sky guidelines and they mentioned that in the application. So one of, one of my, my jobs is to assess some development applications for the lights that they, they have. And I see that, you know, they've already taken into account all most of the um, very uh, common sense approaches that you can take to reduce light pollution by referring to dark sky uh, guide. So I think overall there is a, there is an awareness uh, in, 
from developers, let's say, or, or large uh, extraction industries that these guidelines exist. Maybe from the general public, there's probably less less awareness. But um, overall, I think uh, there's there's been an increase in the awareness of those guidelines over the last five years. Of course, this year we reviewed them, um, so there'll be a, a slightly revised version of um, the Dark Sky Guidelines because one of the things about lighting technology is that it changes very quickly. So Yes. Yeah. 20 years ago, who was using LEDs, right? Now uh, we use them everywhere because they're just so energy efficient. And one of the concerns about LEDs, of course, is the um, the colors that oh, yeah. get from LEDs. Many people who drive on country roads have these uh, LED car lights, which are blue color. They just blind you yep. on the road, right? I've uh, heard you say that you could. that's probably one of the, the worst source of light that you get at the observatory with these headlights flicking up to the observatory. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, and and uh, so you, you need to revise your guidelines to to reflect changes in technology. And so one of the things we recommend in the guidelines is to use what we call a, a warm warm temperatures LEDs, which have a sort of a more of an orangey color, because two reasons: um, one, it's it's less harsh on the eyes at night, and uh, Blue light scatters more efficiently in the atmosphere than, than red or light. And so have a, a strong preference for people to use the more orangey colors than the bright blue colors because the orange light will scatter less mm. and, and contribute less to light pollution than the, the blue light. Yeah. And it is amazing, actually, when you do get up there at night and you have a dark night, it is, and I've been fortunate to take guests up there and experience, you know, new moon and and just they're, they're shocked at the, this wall of blackness that they walk into and and think that they can find their way through it and if you've not experienced that before it's quite a quite an experience to to find yourself immersed in a black blanket really it's yeah. yes yeah. i mean when when it's cloudy up there it's black uh, you, you you cannot see the hand in front of your face now when the clouds disappear you then got the the natural light from the stars so you can actually see a little bit of the ground around you, but not much. Uh, but one of the other things that really is, um, I guess, due to our geographical location is that we've got a fantastic view of the, the Milky Way galaxy, the center of our galaxy. So during the, uh, the winter nights, at the beginning of the nights, we see the center of the, our galaxy directly overhead. That's something that those who live in the Northern Hemisphere don't have. Uh. We do. And so we get to see this amazing edge on galaxy which we live in yeah. um, directly overhead and Stunning. and the beautiful emu in the night sky too that's right yeah. yes so that if you're living in the city you simply would never see that no uh, wouldn't see uh, this uh what is interstellar dust in the foreground of of the background stars creating the shape of, a, of an emu uh, and it's quite quite distinctive it is it's lovely so chris i'm gonna start winding up but to do so i'd love to hear your most recent or best or first dark sky experience, what stands out for you? Is, was it something that turned you on to astronomy or it doesn't have to be? Oh, I, I mean, certainly I, before I became a professional astronomer, I was, I was an avid amateur astronomer. And so I do recall sitting in the backyard of my parents' place and looking at uh, Comet Haley, uh, <laughs> which came, uh, came through in the 1980s. And then a little bit later was... Supernova 1987A, which uh, was a, a naked eye supernova in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Um, that's another thing you can't see from the uh, um, 
Northern uh, Hemisphere. City, or the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, are the Magellanic Clouds. And for our listeners, uh, the Magellanic Clouds are um, satellite galaxies which are orbiting our own. And uh, and there was a, a supernova which occurred in the large Magellanic Cloud, which is the brighter of the two. Um, and that was a uh, naked eye. Um, but in in the city, you could probably not, you probably wouldn't be able to see it. Really? Mm. In the uh, in the countryside uh, where you had the dark sky, you could see it. And I just found it amazing that you could see this this object, which was an exploding star, which would have occurred maybe a uh, hundred thousand years earlier, because it takes time for light to, to wow. travel yeah. between clouds and us. So that that was. How long did one. you see it for, Chris? You, How long was just, it visible for? It was visible for a few weeks. Oh, really? As long as that. For naked eye, it was visible for a few weeks. Mm. But of course, you know, once it once it became faint, you had to use a telescope to see it, and uh, it would it would be visible for for months. And, and indeed, now what are we? Thirty six years after the event, um, if you've got a powerful enough telescope, you can see the the, um, the remnant. Oh wow! Yeah. and we're known as the, the light echoes. Uh, so uh, they're quite quite uh, quite spectacular. That is a spectacular memory. Yeah, and I wonder how many people share that with you. Yeah. Yes, uh, some people do. Um, another one someone recently shared with me was they observed this through a telescope was the impact of a comet Levy with Jupiter. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, I think that was the early 1990s. Uh, and they're viewing the, the disk of Jupiter through the telescope, but then and the comet had, had impacted behind Jupiter, so you couldn't actually see the impacts. But then when the planet rotates around, and Jupiter rotates with a period of 10 hours, so it's pretty fast. You could see the impact sites uh, sure. coming into view as, as the... Uh, and are they still there? No, the, the impact sites are long gone. Because it's a gas giant, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they punched a hole through the clouds. Yeah. yeah and uh, the impact site, not really the right word here. It's more, uh, yeah, it punched a hole through the clouds. You could see the hole that yeah. it punched the clouds. And then after, you know, a few days, uh, they disappeared. Wow. And these are all the sorts of things that we'd miss out if we didn't have contact with the night sky. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And of course, I guess one of my another another good memory would have been in Chile was uh, seeing one seeing a comet. Uh, I think it was uh, Comet McNaught, um, and uh, seeing that uh, the cometary tail extending from the horizon to the zenith. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was a, a tail which was had a lot of structure to it. So that was. That so was, our planet was going through that tail too, I guess. Probably did at some point, yeah. So, uh, but that was a very impressive sight. Um, and that scene, be able to see from a, um, a light polluted sight, we'd have to come see that for the dark sky sight. Actually, Chris, I'm, I did say I was going to wind up, but I've got one question from the beginning of this. You mentioned that the future of sighting spring might actually include looking at the tracking of space debris or space objects that might impact the Earth. Yeah. Is that uh, what you said? Yes, so certainly um, tracking uh, satellites and the remnants of satellites to better manage uh, our, our that area which is close to the Earth. Uh, most of that, all that material will 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 burn through the Earth's atmosphere and, and be harmless. It's more that uh, what we want to do is prevent satellites from crashing into each other. Uh. Uh, because uh, if that happens, then all that debris gets distributed through that area. And then that poses even more risk if satellites would drop there. So a lot of interest on just tracking where these satellites are. Um, some of these satellites are known, but there's a lot of space junk up there, which is just not known. Or when you launch a rocket, you, 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 uh, there's a lot of material which gets distributed in that area once you've launched a rocket. Uh, 
ones, I mean, spanners or glanders yeah. that have been paint flex. flex. Yeah. Because, you know, th- these materials traveling around at, um, at 20,000 kilometers an hour. So it doesn't take a much to cause serious damage. Yeah. So, but yeah, so and we need. It would be longitudinal. Does that mean that you would, we would link up with other telescopes rather That's than. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you need to have a, a, a network of telescopes over the earth to make sure that you're covering every vantage point. Mm hmm. So that's another reason organizations, typically space agencies, the European Space Agency is one example, JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency is another example, who have interest in facilities at Siding Sprint because it gives them that longitudinal coverage, which they need. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing what happens with the future of Siding Spring. No doubt it'll still be punching above its weight in 50 years' time, and it's all to all due to people like you, Chris, who work hard and have a real passion for the site. So thank you for all you do and thank you for helping protect our dark skies in Australia. Uh, thank you, Marnie, for the opportunity to, to have a chat to you. And uh, yes, Siding uh, Spring the Future is looking very, very, very good. And um, we do need to continue protecting our dark sky. Thank you. On that note, we'll say goodbye. <laughs> Bye.